0: And, as always, special thanks to some of my patrons. Katoros, Brandy, Catherine, Sam, Linda, Janice, Hammer, Katarina, Robert, Florence, Teresa, Sarah, Sophie, Nanette, two Emmas, Emily, Gabrielle, Galen, David, John, and my girl, Judy. Thank you so, so much. You are truly appreciated. And for the rest of my patrons, thank you as well. You, you know who you are. So, today's podcast is going to be on Jesse Pomeroy. This one is coming with a pretty big disclaimer, disclaimer, because it does involve the murder of children, so I've warned you. So, Jesse Harding Pomeroy was born on November 29th, 1859 in Charleston, Massachusetts. So, let's get into some history for that time. So, in this year, one of the oldest known copies of the Bible were seen in Egypt. The manuscript was taken home by a German Biblical scholar, and it consisted of more details of the Lord's Prayer in the book of Matthew. Oregon was admitted as the 33rd state of the Union in the United States. This was also the first year that the insanity plea was used to prove innocence. The Scottish National Gallery opened in Edinburgh, ground broke for the Suez Canal in Egypt. Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities was first published. The Cornwall Railway opened across the Royal Albert Bridge, linking the counties of Devon and Cornwall in England. The Philadelphia A's organized a play, quote, Town Ball, which became baseball 20 years later. The Second Italian War of Independence, the Ball of Magenta—I hope I pronounced that correctly—resulted in a French Sardinian victory under Napoleon III over the Austrians. In Australia, Queensland was established as a separate colony from New South Wales. King Charles the Fifteenth or Carl the Fourth accedes to the throne of Sweden, Norway. First air mill in a balloon took off from Lafayette, Indiana. A volcano in Hawaii began its eruption that lasted 300 days. A geomagnetic storm caused the aurora borealis to shine so brightly that it was seen clearly over parts of the U.S., Europe, and even as far as Japan. And finally, a solar superstorm affected electrical telegraph service. So this was the atmosphere that Jesse was born into. His parents were Thomas J. Pomeroy and Ruth Ann Snowman. Thomas was born in 1835 in Hingham, Massachusetts, though his family had migrated down from Maine. Ruth Ann Snowman was born in 1840 in Maine. Now, Thomas and Ruth got married in September of 1857, Thomas was 22 years old and Ruth just 17. Jesse was the second of two sons, the older being his brother Charles Jefferson Pomeroy. Now, Charles was two years older than Jesse, which, if you do the math, would mean that it was a very real possibility that Ruth was already pregnant with Charles before she and Thomas got married, which back then was a huge no-no. According to the book, quote, Fiend, the shocking true story of America's youngest serial killer, unquote, by the Harold Schechter, Thomas had been a butcher in the beginning of their marriage. While she was pregnant, Ruth said she would go to the slaughterhouses and witness the processing of the animals and sometimes she later admitted that she did assist her husband while he worked. When Jesse was born, he was described as a fussy baby, most likely suffering with colic and cried incessantly. It took until he was nearly a year old for the issue to resolve itself and he came out to be a bit of a smaller, thinner, weaker toddler. But his growth, appetite, and overall personality leveled out and he was described as a healthier, happy, younger child. Now Thomas was a veteran of the U.S. Civil War, and he had enlisted in September of 1862 at 27 years old. This, of course, means that he was already married to Ruth and had both of his sons when he went to fight in the war. Fortunately, he survived. Unfortunately, he came back as a terrible alcoholic. He worked in the dockyard on the Navy yard, dumping the water from the dry dock when needed and also took care of the engine and so on. It was also said that he was a fireman. He had a tough job. No one would deny that. He had seen things during the war that no one should ever have to, and he was a very stern parent. So Ruth's family also hailed from Maine and made their way south to Massachusetts. I really couldn't find much of anything about Ruth's beginnings until she married Thomas. One could imagine how hard it would have been to send your husband off to fight in the Civil War and try to take care of two young sons. Jesse would have been three years old at this time. But when Thomas came back, again, he was a bit different. It was said in most sources that he was quite abusive toward his wife and both children. Now, Jesse's very early years seemed to be, for the most part, uneventful. At times, he would tag along with his dad to work before he started school. He wrote an autobiography, actually, and I'll leave the link to that below in the notes, and in it, he said that he and his brother got along pretty well. They would fuss and fight, as most siblings do, of course, but they also love to go fishing together, play ball together, and so on. At least this is what Jesse says. So at just five years old, it was discovered that he was caught torturing a neighbor's cat, though I couldn't find out what happened after. Around the age of six, his mother sent him off to elementary school, and Jesse said himself that he was quite fond of his first teacher, though he did not enjoy school at all. Because of this, he would skip school often, and because he skipped school, it was said that his father would strip him down naked and beat him with a horsewhip as punishment. Jesse's teachers described him as, quote, Peculiar, intractable, not bad, but difficult to understand. End quote. When he did speak up and answer questions, his answer was the answer, and any correction was just not acceptable. Any level of disciplinary action, even if it was just slight, made him resentful and full of spite. It is also important to note that several sources talked about Jesse having a defect in his right eye that covered his pupil. It was described as a white, thick film. You see, from infancy, this eye had been this way. Some said it was a cataract, which is a medical condition in which the lens of the eye becomes progressively opaque or milky, which results in blurred vision. Others said it was from a virulent infection, and still others said it was caused by a reaction to a smallpox vaccination. Regardless, people were uncomfortable looking at him, and other kids bullied him relentlessly about it. They said he had the evil eye. So, at some point, the family moved to a house just next door to their old one, but was a bit of a step up from where they had been living, and it was closer to he and Charlie's school. His father left the Navy Yard and began working in Boston driving a horse and wagon for another man. Charlie joined a baseball club and was chosen as its captain. Jesse described his brother as a, quote, splendid player, but Jesse was not outgoing like his brother. He actually barely even spoke to other children. Jesse did tell a story in his autobiography, quote, One day, Charlie and I were fishing down on Chelsea Bridge. We went on the first pier of the left-hand side, going towards Chelsea. We had caught a few fish, and Charles was just going to throw the line out again, but as he did so, the hook struck and caught my face, nearly going into my left eye. It buried itself deep, right near the bone under it. We went to Dr. Bickford, and he took it out. Though the pain was great and hurt very much, I did not show any feeling at all, either when it was in there or when the doctor was taking it out. End quote. At about 11 years old, Jesse discovered that he absolutely loved to read and spent a great deal of time doing so, even enjoying full novels. But his favorite were books about the violent tales of the Native American wars. He would also play what they called scouts and Indians with other children, and he delighted in recreating the torturous methods that he had read about in these books. Around this age, his mother began to notice that money was starting to go missing from the house. So, Jesse, after one particularly bloody beating from his father, where he forced Jesse to strip down completely naked, killed his mother's songbirds by removing their heads. Growing tired of the constant bullying he endured from the other kids, he began to bully children smaller than himself. He began to withdraw and much preferred to be by himself, reading his stories full of blood, gore, sex, and war. Also around this time, his brother began noticing girls, and so he began to spend much less time with Jesse, and really the only person that he felt any modicum of love or comfort from was his mother. Sure, she knew he had killed her birds, and she was fairly certain Jesse was stealing money from the house that he had been caught torturing a cat, and so on, but she firmly believed that he was acting out from the intense bullying he endured along with his father's beatings. At one point, Ruth chased Thomas out of the house at Knife Point for abusing her boys. And bravo for her. In 1871, when Jesse was 12 years old, he developed severe pneumonia His fever spiked quite high, and he was incoherent and rambling. His mother, who was completely devoted to her children, did her very best to nurse him back to health while also trying to run a dressmaking shop that she was trying to start. She later admitted that, while he did recover, he would remain, quote, not so well. About a month after he recovered, he would begin his campaign of terror. On December 26th, 1871, two men heard a sound that at first they believed to be the whistling of the wind, but they realized it was the crying of a very young child. They followed the sound into a small outbuilding and inside they found a very young boy hanging from a ceiling beam by a rope around his wrists. The men later stated that his lips were blue and his eyes closed and they would have assumed the little boy dead if it weren't for the very faint small noises that he was making. He had no coat or shirt on and his torso was also apparently beginning to turn blue. On the boy's back were swollen, angry welts. The men immediately cut the boy free, one of them wrapping the boy in his own coat in an attempt to warm the little boy's body. He finally warmed up, opened his eyes, but the trauma was so raw that he was nearly unable to speak. The men were eventually able to locate his home, return him to his terrified parents, and then alerted the police. Unfortunately, the boy could only say that an older boy had done this to him, so it really wasn't much to go on. Two months later, on February 22nd, 1872, Jesse approached his second victim, 7-year-old Tracy Hayden, asking if he'd like to go down to Powderhorn Hill to see some soldiers. Instead, he took him to an old outhouse and began to beat the little boy. He knocked his front teeth out by hitting him in the face with a board also, breaking his nose and splitting his lip open. He took the boy's clothes off, put a handkerchief in his mouth, bound his ankles and wrists, and tied him to a beam. He then began to beat the small child's back with a stick and said to him, quote, and disclaimer, I will cut your penis off. End quote. Luckily, this little boy survived. He could only describe his attacker to the police as an older boy with brown hair. In May, Jesse walked up to eight year old Robert Meyer and asked if he'd like to go see the circus. The boy happily agreed and set off with Jesse, only as they passed a pond, Jesse attempted to toss the boy in. Robert managed to get free of Jesse's grasp just as Jesse hit him in the head and drug him to another outhouse. He disrobed the young boy, stuck a milk cork in his mouth, and tied him to a post using clothesline. He began beating the boy with a stick and was described as laughing and jumping at the same time. He removed the cork and forced the little boy to say a string of cuss words, much to Jesse's delight, apparently. Robert later stated that Jesse's breathing began to slow and become deeper as he began to stroke himself from the outside of his clothing. Once he completed his action, if you will, he untied Robert and ordered him to put his clothes back on. He then let the boy go. Now, this latest assault had the entire Chelsea neighborhood up in arms. It was said that hundreds of boys within the described age range were questioned by the police, but there just wasn't any information leading to the perpetrator. It was also during the summer of 1872 that Ruth decided to permanently throw her husband out of the house. She had had enough of his abuse and bullying of her boys, especially jesse she had managed to build up quite the respectable dressmaking shop and could afford to be on her own days before she threw him out he had found jesse out skipping school he dragged him home took all of his clothes off and beat him mercilessly with a belt also that summer two days after his father was ordered to leave jesse would strike again Seven-year-old Johnny Balch was standing in front of a toy store, looking longingly at a miniature wooden castle when Jesse approached him and asked for his name. He asked young Johnny if he'd like to make some quick money, and Johnny agreed. Jesse lured the boy through a brickyard and to yet another old outhouse. He grabbed the boy suddenly, pulled him into the outhouse, and told him that if he made a sound, he would kill him. Jesse disrobed Johnny, took a length of rope from his pocket and bound the boy's wrists and hung him from a higher beam. Jesse then removed his own belt and began to beat the little boy all over his back, then the front of his torso, down to his legs and on his bottom. He then moved to the boy's, let's say front, beating him still with this belt. Jesse climaxed again and began to calm down as he had before. He let the boy down and he told him, If you leave this place, I will come back and slit your throat. Jesse then exited the outhouse, but Johnny was so completely terrified and in such pain, black and blue from his beating, that he just laid down on the disgusting floor of that outhouse for two hours until a passerby heard him his sobs he clothed the boy and carried him to the nearest police station the local newspapers picked up on the stories one article titled quote unaccountable depravity by the boston evening transfer it stated that there was a 500 dollar reward for the arrest and conviction of anyone involved in these attacks now in 1872 would be over $11,000 today. The perpetrator was dubbed the Boy Torturer, and with that amount of reward money, groups of people gathered determined to find this fiend. With all of this violence and public uproar, Ruth took her two sons and moved from Chelsea to South Boston, where she was also moving her dressmaking shop. Now, some sources say that after reading the newspaper and seeing the description of the assailant, she feared that it might be her son, and that's why she uprooted the boys and moved so quickly. A couple of weeks later, Jesse approached seven-year-old George Pratt, who had been walking up and down the South Boston coastline looking for little trinkets, and he offered him 25 cents to help him with an errand. George agreed and then met the same fate as the previous boys, only this time Jesse literally bit off a chunk out of George's cheek. He clawed at the young boy's flesh and used a sewing needle to puncture the boy's body over and over. Then Jesse bit another chunk of meat out of the boy's bottom before leaving the child, but thankfully he was found and he survived. So then the police determined that the attacker must have some mental defect to have committed such a horrific attack they apparently gathered up all of the boys within the age range that were known to have disabilities but the victims couldn't identify their attacker from those that had been gathered less than a month later jesse kidnapped and assaulted six-year-old harry austin in the same manner as the others only this time as his victim lay bound on the ground jesse stabbed this poor boy under each of his arms and between his shoulder blades with his pocket knife The poor child writhing and screaming beneath him. He then attempted to cut the boy's genitalia off, but was interrupted and fled the scene. Six days later, Jesse attacked and horrifically beat 7-year-old Joseph Kennedy, forcing him to say things against the Christian God, which was horrific for that boy. Jesse then cut the boy across the face with his pocket knife, then dunked the boy and his fresh wounds into nearby salt water and left. But the boy was still alive. Less than a week later, he attacked five-year-old Robert Gould, stripping him naked, beat him, and slashed at him with his knife. The victim was able to give the authorities a proper description of the attacker. He described him as an older boy who had one eye that was white like marble. So, for whatever reason, on his way home from school one day, Jesse walked into a police station where they were still questioning one of his victims, young Joseph Kennedy. Once he recognized his victim, he quickly turned around and left, but he had been recognized and was stopped outside by officers. They brought him back into the station and put him in a jail cell. They questioned him as he said he was innocent and where he eventually fell asleep. Around midnight, they woke him up suddenly and began questioning him, but he still insisted that he was innocent. Once they threatened him with a 100-year sentence, well, he finally fessed up. The very next day, he was taken to the main Boston jail, where his victims were each brought in, and they identified him as their attacker. The same day, he was put in front of a judge, where he listened to his victims recount their ordeal with him. His own mother came to his defense, stating he was a good boy who was obedient, hardworking. She began to weep on the stand. But when it was his turn and he was asked why, his response was simply, quote, I couldn't help myself, end quote. With that, Jesse was sentenced to the House of Reformation in Westboro, a boys' reform school until he was 18 years old, so for six years. Now, Westboro was said to have been a cruel place where the strong preyed upon the weak. The boys were made to do basically slave labor and behavior modification wasn't really on the agenda, but Jesse's records had shown that he had been the model of expected behavior. And then his mother, Ruth, could never wrap her mind around her son being guilty and she worked tirelessly to get him released. After a year and a half, after promising to keep him on a tight leash and put him immediately to work, She got her wish, and he was released into her custody. Now, she was still working hard and being slightly successful in her dressmaking shop, and his older brother, Charles, had a rather large paper route, and he also had a small newspaper stand outside of his mother's shop. Both Ruth and Charles were obviously upstanding, law-abiding citizens. What was unfortunate is that Ruth's neighborhood was still under the impression that Jesse was locked up. On March 18, 1874, just six weeks after being released into his mother's care, the now 14-year-old Jesse was in charge of opening his mother's shop and his brother's newsstand, which were conveniently right across the street from their home. Jesse began his day sweeping the floors when another part-time employee, Rudolph Kaur, near his own age, entered the shop and struck up a conversation with him. As they chatted, 10-year-old Katie Curran entered the shop asking if they had any notebooks as she needed one for school. Jesse explained that they did in fact have one, but it did have a small ink stain on the cover and offered to sell it to her at a reduced price. Jesse then sent Rudolph with some money to the butchers to get some scraps to feed some animals. Jesse then explained to Katie that the store was downstairs and for her to follow him, to which she did. At the bottom, Jesse put his arm around her neck, hand covering her mouth, and he slit her throat, basically decapitating her. He cut open her clothing all down the front of her dress. He then began to brutally mutilate her lower abdomen and beyond. He then dragged her body off to a corner and attempted to cover her body with stones and ash. But when Jesse heard his brother enter the shop, he quickly washed his hands and dashed upstairs as if nothing had happened. In less than an hour, Katie's mother was out searching in the streets. The first shop she stopped at said that they had told Katie that they didn't have any notebooks and that they had sent her over to Mrs. Pomeroy's shop. Now this stopped the mother dead in her tracks because she was quite familiar with that name. On her way to Ruth's shop, she actually stopped at a police station where she was told that she had nothing to fear that he had been rehabilitated at the reform school, and that he had only attacked boys, whereas her daughter was a girl. They sent her home and told her to wait, that she'd show up, but news spread quickly that Katie was missing, and Rudolph told her mother that he had, in fact, seen Katie in Ruth's store, and that she and Jesse had spoken. Again, she went to the police, and again, she was waved aside, dismissed. But an officer did visit the shop, and Ruth was angry that her boy was being accused of something to do with the girl's disappearance. But there wasn't any evidence in the shop, so he left. Later and unfortunately, a credible witness had come forward swearing that he saw Katie lured into a wagon and had been kidnapped, so the case was closed. So even with this close call, it did nothing to slow Jesse's need for violence. He began trying to lure children away with him with promises of money or seeing the circus, only this time most refused. They had been warned to not leave with anyone that they didn't know. There were a couple of near misses, but luckily they were able to get away. So his first official murder victim, Katie, was killed just over a month after his release. His second victim was a month later, four-year-old Horace Millen, who had been given a couple of pennies from his adoring mother to take to a very close-by bakery to get some sweets. Jesse saw him and approached him, asking him where he was going. The two began to walk together. Inside the bakery, Horace purchased a small cake and immediately shared it with Jesse. Then Jesse led the small boy to a nearby harbor to play. This time, there were several witnesses of the two boys walking together. So after Jesse felt that they were secluded enough, he got out his pocket knife and cut the little boy's throat. But this didn't kill the little boy immediately. So Jesse began stabbing him over and over. There was evidence of defensive wounds indicating little Horace had tried fiercely to fight back. But once the boy was gone, Jesse continued his violent assault on the body, concentrating quite a bit in the genital area. He also mutilated one of the little boy's eyes. A few hours later, two brothers who had been playing along the beach ran up a hill and discovered Horace's mutilated remains. They yelled for help, alerting men who had been duck hunting and had witnessed the little boy walking with Jesse hours earlier. One stayed with the remains and the other went to find the police. Not long after, Horace's father went to the police station to report his son missing and described the little boy and what he had been wearing. The Mullins received the devastating news not long after. Luckily, there was only one suspect and everyone knew who that was. The authorities went directly to his home and found him there, taking him into custody. His desperate mother yelled and screamed that her son was innocent and Jesse assured her that he was and that he would be back home soon. And, at first, he denied any involvement in the little boy's murder. Part of his time during that day he could not account for, though, and he was not able to provide a solid alibi for the time around when the boy was murdered. He did have a scratch on his face, and he explained it away that he had done it to himself while shaving. But they found his pocket knife, and it was caked in mud and dried blood. The knife was examined to see if it fit the wounds on the small boy and, of course, it was a match. Jesse was then taken into a jail cell where apparently he went right to sleep as if nothing was wrong. The next morning, he was formally arrested for Horace's murder. He continued to deny the allegations until they threatened to take him down to the funeral home and show him Horace's broken and battered body. Finally, Jesse confessed. He said, quote, I am sorry I did it. Please don't tell my mother. End quote. He was apparently crying when he said this. He told them to put him somewhere where he would never be able to hurt anyone else. Katie's remains were later found in the basement after Ruth had been forced to close her shop and someone else had bought it. He was found guilty of murder, and the sentence for such a crime at that time was death by hanging, except Jesse was only 14 years old, so there had to be some discussion as to what to do with him and if the death penalty was appropriate. They asked him why he had killed Katie, to which he replied, quote, I don't know. I wanted to see how she would act, End quote. Though his defense tried to get the insanity plea for him, he was ultimately found guilty of first-degree murder, but the jury recommended the sentence be life in prison rather than the death penalty, and that life sentence was to be spent in solitary confinement. His only interactions were with prison guards and his mother, who was allowed to visit him once a month until she died. But, after 41 years in solitary, he was allowed to be out in the general population at 57 years old. Now, during his incarceration, he wrote his 70-page autobiography, and again, I'll put the link to that down in the notes. He did try to escape numerous times, but was never successful. Now, what's interesting is that, while in prison, he actually taught himself multiple other languages, including Hebrew and German. And it was said that he could write German with, quote, considerable accuracy. He also wrote poetry and other things, and I'll link that down below in the notes as well. He studied law books to try to argue his way to freedom, but to no avail. In 1929, at 70 years old, he was transferred to Bridgewater Hospital for the Criminally Insane because his health was failing and he died in September 1932 of natural causes. So, it really isn't customary at all to label anyone under the age of 18 as having antisocial personality disorder or a psychopath or a sociopath under 18, and they prefer to label the pattern of behaviors that Jesse displayed as a conduct disorder. These disorders include traits such as failure to attach meaning to the lives of others, grandiosity, feeling of self-importance, cruelty to animals, cruelty to other people, lack of empathy and remorse, withdrawal, and chronic lying. Now Jesse, of course, displayed all of these behaviors and more. So, was he born to kill? Conditioned to? Now, while children getting what my part of the South calls whoop back then was the norm, quite common for the day and age, actually, but would stripping your child down naked and beating them with a belt be considered normal? I myself, had that happen to me, and I'm here to tell you, it is not. I mean, I myself certainly do not think that it's normal. And then for Jesse to turn around and do the exact same thing to most of his other victims, if his father hadn't taken all of his clothes off and then whip him horrifically with a belt or a horsewhip, would Jesse have gone on to be violent toward other smaller, weaker children than him? Well, I can't say. In my opinion, I believe the pathology was already there. And I think the environment lit the match. But tell me, what do you think? Leave me a comment below if you're watching, or you can DM me on Instagram, at serial underscore killing. You can email me at serialkillinginstagram at gmail.com, and as always, thank you so much for listening, because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me, and I appreciate that. Thank you, and have a great day.